I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. I'm really looking forward to this passage. And I'm going to begin my reading this morning at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14. I feel like 1 Corinthians 14 is kind of like the pregame workout before we begin to climb the mountain of chapter 15. But um, let us not overlook chapter 14. There's a lot of really wonderful things for us in this text. I'm going to read verses 20 through 25. I'm going to preach a sermon entitled, The Power of Clear Preaching. The Power of Clear Preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 20. These are the words of God. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written... With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. I don't have to tell you that we live in a day of ecclesiastical oddity. Or to state that in simpler terms, we live in a day with a whole lot of weird churches. I never cease to be amazed by what is done in many assemblies on the Lord's Day in the name of Christian worship. I am so blessed to be a member of this church and I'm so thankful for uh, the way that God has led us to worship him, and every now and then I hear of something that's taking place in some church somewhere on a Sunday morning, and my jaw just drops when I think about what goes on in the name of Christian worship in so many places. And I'm not talking about good churches that merely have a different culture, right? I hope that we aren't so proud as to think that our church is the standard And to become biblical, all other churches must become like us. That's not at all what I'm saying. No, when I talk about bizarre worship in Christian churches, please don't think that I'm making a blanket statement about any church that dares to do something differently than the way we might do it, right? No, I'm I'm talking about churches that have completely abandoned so much as an attempt to take the Bible into consideration when they come together for worship. I'm not talking about well-meaning churches that want to honor God and want to follow the Bible, but just don't quite understand what the Bible teaches about corporate worship, nor am I up here professing to you that I know everything the Bible teaches about worship. Now, I'm talking about churches that couldn't care less what God has to say in His Word about how we are to worship, 
Because they're going to worship however they want. Every time I think I've seen it all, something new comes along. Uh, someone sends me a link, and you know I always make the mistake of clicking on it, and then I have to watch this cringe thing that someone is doing in the name of worship with no regard for the authority of Christ as the head of his church. Um, last Friday at the, the school, we had a, a, a winter play. The students put on a play Friday evening. And they did the play in the auditorium of the church. And to prepare for that, of course, you know, they moved the pulpit and they, they put up props and decorations and they put in, um, they, instead of, they took out the pew chairs and they put in tables and made it like a, a play theater, right? And uh, I told one of the pastors of the church there, I said, you know, brother, you ought to just take a picture of this and put it on Facebook and say, the church has gone contemporary. No more pulpit, no more sermons. No, we're going to do skits and plays. But the truth is, the sad truth is, that would actually be a really minor thing compared to what goes on in some places. Well, I tell you these things, and I start out this way, to give you an idea of what Paul was dealing with as he wrote to the Corinthian church. The church at Corinth was not a church that had some minor quick fix issues with their worship. They were not a church that was pretty much on the right track. They just needed a few details hammered out. It wasn't like, hey, you guys are just singing hymns. You should sing psalms too. Or it wasn't like, hey, you know, you guys should add a time of scripture reading in your liturgy. No, it was you guys are worshiping in a way that is completely foreign to the instruction of God. Think about what you would see if you dropped in to worship with the Corinthians on any given Sunday. You're in town, you're visiting, you see the church, you, you just walk in on a Sunday morning. What would you see? Well, there's Brother Joe back there next to his father's wife with whom he's having an affair coming to church. And there's a, a couple groups over there. They're, they're all arguing over their favorite teacher. I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. That's going on. And then you got this crowd over there that's drunk at the Lord's Supper. And then, last but not least, in the midst of everything else, there's also this out-of-control, undisciplined, ecstatic use of the gift of tongues that sounds more like a symphony of gibberish than intelligible Christian worship. You would walk into that church and you would think, what did I just step into? Well, if the Apostle Paul ever seems to you a bit harsh in this epistle, it's because unlike the Corinthians and many in our day, Paul understood the importance of Christian worship. He understood how beautiful and how precious it is to worship God in spirit and truth according to his word. I don't think that we are ever going to get to heaven and have God say to us, your problem, Christ Fellowship, was that you were too careful about how you worshipped me. All throughout this letter, Paul has addressed these various issues one by one. And now in 14, in chapter 14, he is addressing the unbridled use of tongues. The importance of verses 20 through 25 of this chapter cannot be overstated. Because it is in these verses that Paul deals with the very practical questions of tongues and prophecy in the church. Why did God give the gift of tongues? 
What is the place of prophecy in Christian worship? How are these gifts to be used? How are we to view them in the church? Well, because of the the straightforward and practical nature of these verses, by way of an outline, I want to show you five lessons taught by the Apostle Paul in this text. So think of this outline not so much as a, a logical progression, but kind of just five lessons that Paul teaches us in this text as it relates to specifically the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Five lessons. However, my title is not lessons on how to use tongues or lessons on how to use prophecy. Rather, my title is The Power of Clear Preaching. Because as we will see, the ultimate overarching lesson of this text, if you, if you wanted to boil it down to one lesson, it is that God has not placed his blessing on the foolish things done in worship that lack clarity and understanding. Where has God placed his blessing in the church? Where has God placed divine power in our worship? The power to save saints? The power to, to sanctify the power to build up the church, the power of Christian worship resides in the clear, unambiguous preaching of the Word of God. So let us dive into this text and consider these five lessons about the use of tongues and prophecy in the church and the power of clear preaching. Number one, lesson number one, we see a lesson in condemnation. A lesson in condemnation, in verses 20 and 21. Look at the text with me. Paul begins and he says, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Paul begins this text by talking about the right kind of childishness. Childishness is not always a bad trait so long as it is childishness in the right things. Childishness (coughs) refers to a kind of blissful ignorance, Uh, perhaps even a, a naivety that comes from a lack of experience and wisdom. That's what childishness is. Paul says in malice, right? What is malice? Evil, uh, um, malevolence, right? In, in, in wickedness and evil and malice, I want you to be childish. In fact, Paul actually uses two different words here that are translated the same in the King James. Some of you have other versions in front of you, and you'll see two words for childish, because you see he says that he wants them to not be children in understanding, but in malice, he wants them to be, it's not just the common word for children, it's actually a word for babies or infants. The first word is just the common word for children, but when he speaks in relation to malice, he uses a word that refers to babies or infants. So when it comes to evil, to our malevolence, the Bible tells us that childishness is actually a virtue. Now, Scripture is clear that even an adorable little baby is a depraved creature that needs a savior. As Vodi Bakum calls them affectionately, vipers in diapers, right? <laughs> and by the way, it doesn't take very long for that depravity to manifest. But the reason why the maliciousness of a baby is commended to us 
is because babies don't have the cunning to devise sinister plans to accomplish their evil desires. Babies don't sit around plotting and scheming to achieve evil. Their malice is not sophisticated. Their evil is not developed. They, they act on impulse, right? And when you raise children, you want them to be ignorant in the realm of evil for as long as possible. You want to shield them from that realm of evil. You don't want them to develop and to grow into maturity in the relation to malice and evil. So in malice, Paul says, be children, be childish, be like babies. But there are other areas in which childishness is not a blessing, but a curse. And one such area is in our understanding. And the same immaturity and the same naivety that is a blessing in evil becomes a curse when it is applied to our understanding. So Paul tells the Corinthians, don't be childish in your understanding. You ask, understanding what? Well, what's the context of this chapter? Paul is saying, don't be childish in your understanding of tongues and prophecy and preaching in Christian worship. And when Paul says this, he's simultaneously issuing instruction and rebuke. What's the, what's the rebuke? Well, the implication. Don't be childish. What's the, what does that imply? That they were being childish. And Paul, all throughout this epistle, he, he, he gives these backhanded rebukes to the Corinthians. Because what was the Corinthian problem? They thought they were so wise. They thought they were so mature. They thought they had arrived. And so Paul tells them uh, earlier in the epistle, hey, I wanted to speak to you like grown-ups, but when I came to you, I realized I had to talk to you like babes because you're carnal. And so here he says, don't be childish. Quit being childish in your understanding. When it came to their understanding of tongues and prophecy and how these gifts were to be used in corporate worship, they were like children. And now what Paul is going to do is expose the folly of their childishness. See, here's what a child does. They come to some conclusion that they think is so wise and so smart and so they state it very boldly as if they just discovered the moon. But all they do is reveal their total disconnect with reality. I teach Christian school and work with children five days a week. And I hear statements like this every day. Things that make me want to respond by saying... All your statement did was prove to me that you have no idea how things work in the real world because you are a child. It sounds good to them. It sounds smart to them because of their childish understanding. But when an adult hears it, we hear that and we think, what a childish thing to say. What a childish way to think. And so here the Corinthians are thinking they're super spiritual, thinking they're super smart. And then when someone, Paul, who is actually mature, comes and views their worship, he says, you guys are children. You don't know anything. And sometimes I do say that. Why? <laughs> because our job as teachers 
is to lead them to a correct and biblical understanding of the world so that they can begin to think rightly. But the initial step in that process is the uncomfortable step of exposing folly. And so Paul is in the midst of that. He's exposing their folly. He's showing them how childish their thinking is. He's laboring to get the Corinthians to a place of proper thinking about how God is to be worshipped in the church. Notice how he does this. This is so instructive for us. How do you expose the folly of a child? What does he say in verse 21? In the law, it is written. Paul exposes their wrong thinking by comparing it to the infallible rule of Scripture. <coughs> in other words, he says, Oh, you think you have a great idea. Okay, please tell me, what does the Bible say about it? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 that we are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As Christians, it must be our day-by-day, moment-by-moment, instance-by-instance endeavor to think biblically. The only way to do that is by saturating our minds in the Word of God. Don't be surprised if you never read your Bible that you are unable to think biblically. And so Paul takes them not to his own subjective view, but he takes them to Scripture. And he says, in the law, it is written. Now, Paul is now going to give us a loose quotation from Isaiah 28.11. Let me read the quotation, and let me explain how Paul is using it here. Notice, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Remember the outline. What is the first lesson? It's a lesson in condemnation. Why is it a lesson in condemnation? Because... Paul is using Isaiah 28.11 to demonstrate that when there is no understanding and interpretation, tongues are not a sign of divine blessing, but of divine judgment and condemnation. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God warned Israel of the curses that would come upon them for their unfaithfulness to Jehovah. And in Deuteronomy 28, in verse 49, the Bible says this, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far and from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, listen, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. You've got a nation whose tongue you don't understand coming against you. That's a sign of divine condemnation. Foreign languages among the Israelites meant one of two things. It meant invasion or it meant exile. But it did not mean blessing. Well, both of these happened in 722 B.C. when Israel was taken into captivity because of their apostasy and unbelief. And what did they hear in their captivity? a language that they did not understand. Isaiah is prophesying around the time of Assyrian captivity. And so Isaiah 
echoes back to Deuteronomy 28, and he says, a nation will come against you, and you won't understand them. And every time an Israelite heard someone speak in the Chaldean tongue, they were reminded that they were where they were because of the judgment of God. So here's Paul's point to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were rejoicing in something going on in their church that was a mark of God's judgment against them. When God allows our churches to be given over to chaos and gibberish and foolishness, that's not a sign of his blessing upon us. That's a sign of his judgment. Now make no mistake about it. When tongues were rightly used, that means with interpretation, with understanding, that led to spiritual edification, well then it certainly was a blessing. It certainly was a gift from God. But the Corinthians had so misused and abused the practice of tongues that they turned something that was meant to be a divine blessing into a mark of divine condemnation. See, when God judges a church, he gives them over to foolishness and nonsense. It might be the abuse of tongues or it might be preaching in a known language that just makes absolutely no sense. Or it might be a church that abandons the clear preaching of the Word of God and just participates in foolishness on Sunday morning. When a church is doing that, what is that a sign of? It's not a sign that God's favor is upon them. It's not a sign that God is blessing them. It's a sign that God is judging them. And allowing them to sit in darkness, allowing them to sit in deception. The childish folly of the Corinthians is seen in that they preferred unintelligible tongues over the clear preaching of the Word of God. You walked into Corinth on Sunday, and you've got the whole church just speaking in tongues with no understanding and no interpretation, but you don't have a man of God called and qualified standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. They preferred that which could not be understood over that which could be understood. And Paul teaches them that these wrong desires were a sign of condemnation. So the first is a lesson in condemnation. Secondly, I want to show you a lesson in confirmation. A lesson in confirmation. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Tongues confirm something. Tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. The word sign refers to an indication of the divine presence. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus and his apostles would perform signs and wonders. The purpose of these signs was to vindicate that Jesus was truly the Christ. He was truly the Messiah sent from God and that his message should be received because his message was God's message. And so he performed miracles that confirmed the authenticity of his ministry. 
Well, the same was true for tongues when they were rightly used in the church. Notice, I said, was true. Why? Because this was in a day before the canon of Scripture was complete. Somebody comes and visits the Corinthian church, you can't just say, uh, here's the 66 books of the Bible. Here's God's word for you. Neatly bound in a goatskin leather cover, right? They didn't have that. If someone visited the Corinthian church, they couldn't point to one copy of the complete, inspired, authoritative, infallible, preserved word of God to convince them of the truth of Christianity, right? So let's say someone did visit the Corinthian church, and let's say they were a skeptical unbeliever, trying to discern whether or not Christianity was true. Perhaps they've listened to the pagan philosophers of their day. Maybe they've previously visited the places of worship of other religions, and now here they are visiting a Christian church. What is different? What stands out? How, how should I know to believe this over the other things that I've heard? Well, what if that unbeliever was there, and someone in the church stood up and spoke in a foreign language that they did not naturally know, and then someone else who also did not naturally know that language stood up and gave an infallible interpretation of what they said. Do you think that unbeliever who was visiting the church might be caused to stop and think, I ought to look into this some more. I ought to think more about Christianity. Because I just witnessed a supernatural demonstration that confirmed to me what is being done in the name of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul says, tongues are a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. When they are abused, they're a mark of condemnation. But when they were practiced rightly, they were a powerful sign of confirmation. But notice what else Paul says here in this verse. He says, But prophesying serveth not for them that believe, but for, or not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Tongues for unbelievers, prophesying for believers in terms of their confirmation. Now, th this is not to say that there was no value to the gift of prophecy for unbelievers. Right? It's simply to say that believers do not need the gift of tongues to convince them of the truth because they already believe the truth. They don't need to be convinced of the divine presence of Christ in Christian worship. They're already believing in the divine presence in Christian worship. You know what's so great about my job? And it's something I praise God for. It's why I love to preach here. I regularly have the most liberty and feel the most comfortable and sense the greatest ministry of the Holy Spirit through me when I'm preaching in my own pulpit. And that's because I know that you people believe the Bible. And that means I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you. Because I know that if I faithfully demonstrate that what I'm preaching is biblical, you'll believe it. And if I don't faithfully demonstrate that what I'm preaching is biblical, you won't believe it. And you shouldn't believe it. 
May God remove me from this pulpit if I ever ask you to believe something because Ken said so. By God's grace, this is not a church built on the fallible words of men, but on the infallible word of God. And that makes it a very enjoyable place to preach. Why? Because prophesy, prophecy serveth for them which believe. We don't need a, a, a supernatural sign. We don't need a miracle to, to confirm the truthfulness. I don't have to raise someone from the dead for you to believe my sermon. I just have to show you that my sermon comes from the Word of God. I just have to show you that what I'm teaching and preaching to you is biblical. And I know that if I do that, you'll believe that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has convicted you and convinced you of the truth of God's Word. The clear preaching of the Word of God declares to us that God is in this place. I I love that. You don't have to listen to a man for very long to figure out if he's really called of God. You don't have to spend very long in a church to figure out whether or not this is a true church of God. Is there biblical preaching in this place? If so, God is here. Now, there might be reasons, other reasons, why we might not attend that service. There might be other reasons why we might not join that church or why we might prefer another church over that church. But wherever there is biblical preaching, there is the divine presence. And I fully believe that the preaching of the Word of God is the single most important thing about any church. Before you ask what kind of music do they have or what kind of building do they have or what, what, uh, what do they wear or even more important questions like do they baptize babies? That's an important one. That's so important for me that that, that is one of the questions that will determine where I go to church. But even if they answer that question differently than me, so long as the Word of God is being preached, God is there. They are a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The clear preaching of the Word of God declares to us God is here. And and listen, take, take comfort in this. Be encouraged by this. So long as the truth of God's Word comes forth from this pulpit, we can trust that God will attend it with divine blessing. That, that, is, that is number one on the list of our priorities. To safeguard the veracity of what is preached and what is taught and what is believed among the people that call themselves members of this church. Nothing could be more important. Because, again, most of those ecclesiastical oddities that we talked about earlier, most of the bizarreness that goes on in other places, oftentimes is done in multi-million dollar buildings that are packed to the gills. But just as tongues practiced unbiblically is not a sign of God's blessing, neither is all of the material possessions and uh, zeros in the bank account if the truth of the word of God is not being proclaimed. We come to hear the truth. We come this morning to hear God speak to us. So there's a lesson in confirmation. Thirdly, I want you to see, there's also a lesson in confusion in verse 23. Now, when you first read verse 23, after having just read verse 22, it, it almost seems like Paul is contradicting himself. Perhaps you've already seen 
what I'm talking about. Well, in verse 22, Paul tells us that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But now, in verse 23, he tells us that if an unbeliever comes into the church and we're all speaking in tongues, they're going to think we're crazy. Notice what he says in verse 23. He says, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? So which is it, Paul? Are tongues a sign for unbelievers or are tongues a confirmation that we're all crazy? How do we reconcile this apparent contradiction? Well, very simply, I believe that the difference is tongues used rightly and tongues used wrongly. That's the difference. Verse 22 describes the right use of tongues. Verse 23 is talking about the abuse of tongues. Let me prove it to you. Next week, we're going to look at some more specific directions from this text about how tongues were to be used in the church. But let me give you a brief preview that is pertinent to a right understanding of verse 23. Among the parameters or limitations that God gives for the gift of tongues in the church, one of them was this. Notice in verse 27, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course. That means in order, not not, not all together, but one at a time and no more than two or three. And let one interpret. So you can have two or three that speak in tongues and uh, they have to go in order. They can't talk over each other. It needs to be orderly. And you can have one that interprets. But what's going on in verse 23? The whole church has come together, and they're all just speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. And they're not going one by one. (laughs) If they were, Paul wouldn't have told them to go one by one. And so the same unbeliever who visited the Corinthian church and was convinced of the validity of Christianity because of the proper and orderly use of tongues would go away convinced of the insanity of the church if he walked in and everybody was speaking in tongues. And sadly, that's what was taking place at the Corinthian church. Paul is writing to correct their abuse of tongues. And one of the ways they abused tongues was not limiting themselves to two or three and not having one who interprets. And so Paul says in verse 23, if an unbeliever were to walk in on your worship service, he'd think you were all crazy. And rightfully so. If you were to visit a church and you were to walk in and everybody's just... Uh, speaking French and speaking Spanish and speaking Japanese and you're sitting there thinking you people have lost your minds. You're mad. Listen, if unbelievers think we're crazy because we believe the Bible, then so be it. If they think we're crazy because we believe that God created the world in six days and that there's only two genders and that the man, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and was buried and rose again the third day, then so be it. But let's not cause unbelievers to think we're crazy because we're doing something that's actually crazy. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. The reason why unbelievers don't come to your snake handling church is not because they just don't understand. It's because you've got a rattlesnake out on Sunday morning. That's why they don't come. Let's not cause them to think we're crazy because, well, we're actually crazy. Rather, 
our desire should be that even if unbelievers leave here completely unconvinced of the truth claims of Christianity, they will nevertheless recognize that we take these truths very seriously and we hold them with decency and reverence. They might say, I don't agree with them, but I know that they're very respectful about what they do. They take it very seriously, and obviously what they were doing was of (laughs) immense importance to them. Let us strive to do nothing in the church that is unnecessarily confusing. Unnecessarily confusing. If you think about it, I know that our church does many things that are different in the modern context, but you know, the real secret about our church is that we are painfully simple. Painfully simple. We meet together, we read the Word of God, we pray to God, we sing to God, we preach the Word of God, and we go home. Painfully simple. There's nothing confusing about that. Because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And therefore, our worship should be marked not by confusion, but by peace. So Paul gives them a lesson in confusion. By abusing spiritual gifts, and again... This is not just uh, limited to the use of tongues. We don't have to be abusing tongues to be confusing in the church. I've listened to way too many confusing sermons. Let us strive to be clear. Let us keep our yes, yes, and our no, no, and follow God in order and decency and reverence. That doesn't mean we have to sit there like wax statues That doesn't mean that we're called to be wooden Indians. That doesn't mean that emotions have no place. I mean, just go back and listen to the previous sermon in this series on the the amen in corporate worship. But God doesn't contradict himself. The same God that said we should give an emotional response of the amen is also the God that calls us to worship him in decency and order. Well, there's two more lessons. And with these last two lessons, we really get to the crux, the meat, the the main event of this passage. So let me give them to you. One is in verse 24. One is in verse 25. Notice, fourthly, there's a lesson in conviction. There's a lesson in conviction. And now we're really going to see why we've titled this message, The Power of Clear Preaching. Notice what Paul says in verse 24. He says, but if all prophesy and there be one unlearned and one come in that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. We don't have prophets in the church today like they did in the first century. But what we do have in the church today is an infallible, authoritative Bible that demands to be proclaimed. And we have men of God that are called of God to preach the word of God. And Paul says in verse 24 that if we do that, if we are faithful to do that, to preach the word of God, and an unbeliever comes in, he is convinced of all and he is judged of all. What Paul is now doing in verses 24 and 25 is describing what happens when the word of God is declared in the church with clarity and power. In verse 24, Paul speaks of the convicting power of the word of God. 
The Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is a book that cuts to the bone. When we read the Bible or hear the Bible preached, it's not we who sit in judgment of the Bible, it's the Bible that sits in judgment of us. Because the Bible is the book that reads us. It reveals to us the guilt of our sin and the miserable, hopeless condition of our souls apart from the grace of God. And as we read the words of Scripture, the very character of God is revealed to us. And we see how ineffably perfect He is in all His ways. And we see how holy and just is His law. And then the Bible becomes a mirror that reveals how hideously sinful we are in and of ourselves. This is no doubt, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is indeed the very Word of God. When we write books, we want to paint ourselves in the best of light. When we write books, we want to prop ourselves up and make ourselves look good. When we invent religions, we invent religions that speak of our own inherent goodness and worth and ability to save ourselves. But the Bible is a book that lays bare the depravity of our hearts. It's not a book to read when you want to feel good about yourself. It's not a book to read when you're trying to build up your self-esteem. Because the Bible doesn't beat around the bush when it talks about our sinfulness. And what's true of the Bible is true of faithful biblical preaching of the Bible. Biblical preaching doesn't dance around the issue of sin. Biblical preaching is not afraid to declare that those who persist in unbelief are headed on a broad road that leads to eternal hell. Biblical preaching does not cater to the culture. Biblical preaching does not avoid the hot-button issues of our day and anything that might be offensive to modern man or modern woman. Biblical preaching seeks to declare the whole counsel of God. Biblical preaching strives to declare all of what God has said and only what God has said in as bold and as straightforward and as clear of a fashion as possible. And when biblical preaching is accompanied by the ministry of the Holy Ghost, it becomes a tool that God uses to convict those who have not yet come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Albert Barnes, commenting on this passage, says, quote, This is now the effect of faithful preaching to produce deep self-condemnation in the minds of sinners. Deep self-condemnation. Because before anyone can see his need of a Savior, he must first see himself as a sinner. So Paul gives us a lesson of conviction in verse 24. This isn't supposed to be comfortable. This isn't supposed to be cushy and mushy and gushy. God must break us before he can put us back together. And he does that through the power of his word. One of the greatest struggles of, I believe, any, and it's a good struggle to have if you love your people, is the struggle to be bold, the struggle to be truthful, to not mince words. I am... I am convicted myself anytime I'm reading the Gospels and I read the way Jesus dealt with sinners. 
And in our day, we have this impulse to want to be as smooth as we can be and to, to be as uh, encouraging and persuasive as we can be. And we lay out all of these reasons and try to persuade sinners to come to Christ. How did Jesus deal with that? Well, you don't express your desire to come to him because he's going to tell you, oh, you want to come to me? You want to follow me? Then you must hate father and mother or you're not worthy to be my disciple. Any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. It's going to cost you everything, Jesus says. He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? So there's a lesson in conviction. He's convinced of all. He's judged of all. Notice, he is not the one that judges when he comes to church. God is the one that sits in judgment of us. We don't sit in judgment of God. But notice fifthly, in verse 25, not only is there a lesson in conviction, but there's also a lesson in conversion. Oh yes, the Bible most definitely reveals our sinfulness. It most certainly lays bare just how miserably lost we are. But thanks be to God, that's not where it leaves us. Not only does God, in His Word, show us our sins, but He also shows us the Savior. And so, too, must biblical preaching do both. We must declare the reality of sin and the justice of God and the the reality that sinners are destined for condemnation, but we must never fail to proclaim the free gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ to all who see their need. Notice what Paul says in verse 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. Paul is describing the condition of a sinner that has come under Holy Ghost conviction wrought by the preaching of the word. He's been convicted, he's been, he's been judged, and God is now by the Holy Spirit bringing all of the secrets of his heart to the light. This man is beginning to see his heart for what it really is. He's beginning to have his blinded eyes open and his deaf ears unstopped. Have you ever heard preaching that was so pointed and so direct that you thought to yourself, this preacher is reading my mail? It's as if he's in the pulpit talking all about you. But the truth is, it isn't the preacher that knows your secrets. It's God the Holy Ghost who knows everything about you. And he brings the secret of your heart to be made manifest. It's a scary thing, isn't it? If you are here today without Christ, this should terrify you. That God, the Holy Ghost, will bring the secrets of your heart. The things that nobody knows about you. The things that if they were to be played on a screen in this place today, you would run out of town. He knows all about them. And he brings them. To be made manifest. He forces you to deal with them. And he says to you through the preaching of his word, this is what you are. But notice what Paul says next. After the Holy Ghost uses the preaching of the word of God to expose the sins of the unbeliever and to bring a sense of guilt and condemnation, After he has finished the work of plowing up our old dead hearts, he then plants the precious seed of the gospel. 
You say, <coughs> why does conversion involve the Holy Spirit showing me my sin and showing me what a sinner I am and showing me how wretched and evil my heart is because He must bring you to a point in which you see that there is absolutely nothing you could ever do for yourself. You are hopeless. You are damned. You are condemned. You must flee to Christ. You need a Savior. You need someone outside of yourself that will take your sins and will take your iniquity and will take your guilt and consume it upon Himself and give you a righteousness by which you may be saved. So long as you still think, well, there's something left for me to do. There's something I can do to fix this. You're not ready for Christ. Notice what Paul says. And so falling down on his face, he's come to an end of himself. He throws himself at the foot of the cross. And he says, here I am, a sinner. He will worship God. This is one of the most overlooked descriptions of true conversion in all of the scriptures, yet it is one of the most accurate and one of the most beautiful. This is conversion. Falling down on his face, he will worship God. What does this sinner do when he's convinced not only of his sinfulness, but of the wondrous truth that Jesus Christ has shed his blood for him on the cross of Calvary to save him from his sins? What does he do when he comes to realize this? He falls down on his face and he worships. This informs us, does it not, of what we should be asking when we're trying to identify the marks of true conversion? Well, was there ever a time in your life when you made a decision to follow Jesus? Have you ever prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to come into your heart? Did you repeat what the preacher said and did you really mean it? Have you ever been baptized and joined a church? No, beloved, there's a better question that we ought to ask to identify true conversion. And I ask this question to each and every one of you here today. Has there ever been a time in your life when God used the truth of His Word to bring you to an end of yourself and show you what a wretched sinner you were, but that the Lord Jesus, because of His love and grace toward you, bled and died on a rugged cross to save your soul? And did that realization cause you to fall down in worship of this great God? That's biblical conversion. That's what salvation looks like. Well, conversion is not painless. Ask any mother how, how painless it is to give birth. Conversion is not painless. It requires us to see ourselves for what we are. And even in that, there is great grace because God does not show us all at once the hideousness of our sin. Because <laughs> if He did, we would just evaporate. But He shows us enough for it to sting. And, and if you've never felt the sting of your sin, I wouldn't put too much confidence in your supposed conversion. But in addition to the pain of recognizing our sinfulness, Biblical conversion also brings about a joy. A joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. A joy that comes from realizing that yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are condemned. Yes, we are vile and wretched. 
But he has died for us. He has given his life for us. He has saved us. He's united us to himself. And all that's left for us to do is fall down and worship him. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Should he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. Where I was first convinced and judged of all. Where I first fell down and worshipped. And the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. And now, I'm happy all the day. When we sin, we still feel that sting of pain. But as Christians, is not that sting of condemnation and conviction is it not always overcome by the healing, loving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ when we feel conviction of sin and we're quickly reminded of the Savior who has died for us. <coughs> Notice he ends, he says, not only does he fall down and worship God, but he reports that God is in you of a truth. Not only is the unbeliever convinced of his sins and caused to worship God for his salvation, but the power of clear preaching also causes those who are converted to see the church as a place where God dwells and where his truth is made known. When you come to church, do you sense that God is here? That he's in this place? Not in this building, but in these people. He says God is in you of a truth. I love this church because this is a place where my spirit bears witness with the spirit of my brothers and sisters that the same God who sent his son to save me has saved them also. He's convicted me. He's judged me. He's caused me to fall down and worship him. And he's done the same thing in my brothers and sisters. And we share this bond, this unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how has God accomplished this work in all of us? Through the power of of clear preaching. I wasn't saved because of some emotional experience. I wasn't saved because I witnessed some ecstatic use of tongues. I was saved because God brought his word to bear upon my heart. What a sad thing it is when the church is overrun by foolishness and confusion. When the church is overrun by foolishness and confusion, God is not able to do this remarkable work of conversion. It's preaching that God uses to save sinners. And it's preaching that God uses to build up his saints. Let me close with this. There was a a preacher who pastored churches in Mississippi in the 1920s and 30s. His name was Rolf Barnard. And Rolf Barnard in the 20s had a man in his church that was in his late 80s. So you do the math. You're in your late 80s in the 1920s. You're born well into the 1800s. And this old man, anytime he had the opportunity to share his testimony, always loved to stand before the church and tell them how God saved them, how God saved him. And even though the church had heard this story over and over and over again, anytime this man was obliged to tell his testimony, they were always eager to hear it again. He would stand up before the church and he would say, I was a young man. I just married my wife and we lived out in the country and there was no church near us. But each month a circuit riding preacher would come to town. You know what that is. 
It was a, a preacher who he had a, a route and uh, each week he would be in a different city and he would be at, at a different venue where he would preach. And so once a month on Saturday and Sunday, this preacher would come to town. He would preach Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. And then he would travel to the next town and do it each and every weekend. And this man said, I had no interest in the things of God, but I had married a, a godly woman. She really had no business marrying me. But anytime this circuit-riding preacher would come to town, she would always uh, go to hear him preach, and she would always ask me to accompany her, and I always refused. He said, but one month, when the preacher came to town, she asked me to go with her on Saturday evening, and I said, okay, I will go with you. I will come with you, but I'm only going to come this one time. And if I don't like what he has to say, I am never coming back. So Saturday night comes along, and they hitch up their horse and their buggy, and they get in, and they, they ride to town where the preacher is going to be preaching that evening. And they get there to the service, and they take their seats, and the preacher gets up, and he opens up his Bible, and he begins preaching. And the man is sitting there in the pew. He becomes irate. Anger wells up within him because he has come to the conclusion that, that someone in town must have gone to this preacher and told this preacher everything that this man had done and this preacher has now taken the opportunity to preach right at him. Well, the preacher finishes and the service ends and the husband and the wife, they get back in their buggy and they're riding home. The husband doesn't say a word. So finally, the wife asks the husband, she says, well, what did you think of the service? And he looks at her and he says, I can't believe the nerve of that preacher to get up there in front of all my friends, in front of my community, and to begin to just talk about every sin I've committed. Preach against me like that. I am never going back to hear him. So they get home. The wife is discouraged. They go to bed. Sunday morning comes, and the wife is out milking, and she comes back in, and she sees her husband dressed with a suit and a tie on, and he says, well, honey, isn't it about time to go off to church. And she said, well, I thought you said you were never coming back. He says, well, you know, I think maybe I overreacted a little bit and uh, he is in town through the Lord's day, so I'll come back this morning. I'll give him one more chance, but I tell you what, if he does the same thing again, I promise you I will not come back tonight. So they hitch up their horse and their buggy and they go off to church and they get there Sunday morning and they go into the service and they sit down and the preacher just gets up and opens his Bible to the verse where he left off the previous evening. He just keeps right on preaching. And the man, once again, becomes very irritated by the nerve of this preacher to preach directly against his sins and his life. And so... He, he doesn't even stay to the end of service. He, he gets up and he goes back out and he hitches the buggy and he just waits for his wife to get done. She fellowships a little bit, has a cup of coffee. She gets out and they go home and same thing happens. He doesn't say a word. His wife asks what happened and he tells her how upset and frustrated he is with this preacher and he declares that he is never coming back. So they get home Sunday afternoon, have their lunch. Then about 4.30... Husband walks into the living room and says, well, if we leave now, we can still make it to evening service. Well, by this time, the wife is just discouraged and she, she doesn't want a repeat of what happened the previous two times. So she, she couldn't even believe that he wanted to go. Uh, but 
She says, you know, you just go on without me. I'll just stay here tonight. I'll, I'll catch him next month when he comes back. And so the husband, by himself, gets in the, in the buggy, hitches up the horse, goes off to hear the preacher on the final night. Preacher gets up, opens his Bible up to the same text, the same verse where he'd left off in the morning. He begins to preaching. And as he's preaching, the man has a realization. The man realizes that he was right. It was him that the preacher was talking about. He was that sinner that the preacher was preaching against. And he was that lost unbeliever that was in need of a Savior. And it was in that evening service that God used the preaching of his word to save him. And so the husband shakes the preacher's hand and thanks him for coming and he's very excited to get home so he hitches up the horse and he gets in the buggy and he's just booking it back to the house and he gets home and he ties up the horse and he comes strolling in and his wife is sitting in the living room and she looks at him and she says, Honey, I see that the Lord has done something for you tonight. And he says, How did you know? She says, Because I heard you singing as you were hitching up the horse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That was the testimony that that old man would give. I imagine you understand why the church loved to hear it over and over again. But here we are a hundred years later in an America that perhaps is even more hard and even more depraved and even more in rejection to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet it is still the preaching of the word of God that God uses to save sinners. If God is going to bless us with growth and revival, if God is going to bless us with a time of gospel prosperity, he's going to do it through the preaching of the word of God. And there's nothing more important for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to ensure that we are safeguarding the message that is preached, that we are giving ourselves to it, that we are attentive to the Lord when he speaks to us as his people. Your testimony might not be as dramatic. Perhaps you weren't riding in a horse and buggy when God brought you to hear the preaching of the word of God. But has this happened to you? You know what I mean by that question? Has this happened to you? Has the word of God come to you with power and demonstration of the spirit and caused you to fall down and worship God? If it hasn't, I, I pray that you would fall on your face at the God that has died for you, the God who has sent his son to redeem you, that you would receive the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he is. And if you have, then I pray that the word of God would still nourish you and strengthen you and build you up. May God bless us as we give ourselves to the clear preaching of the word. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for preaching, for preachers. And above all, we thank you for the word of God. Oh, that you've given us this, this book that contains the truth of what you would have us to know for life and eternity. Help us, O oh Lord, by the power of the Spirit to subject ourselves to it, to believe it, to never stray from it, to receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Our Jesus, we love you, and we thank you this day. We ask that you would bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.